House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, of course. Yes, you are. Yeah, oh, you're awake today. Usually, takes, I'm awake. Yes, takes you five minutes to get going. Usually, no, you know, I don't know what's going on. Your wife's been beating you again. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, you got to make sure you do the laundry. Get that clothes yeah. ironed properly. That's right. You know, that's what my iron now. Well, you know, <laughs> get a steamer then. Yeah, get a steamer. Anyway, so you got a new <laughs> you got a new uh, review up, eh? I do. Uh, Love and Monsters. I decided to uh, take a look at that. It's it's kind of like an old new review. Yeah, it's yeah, I see that. So. Yeah, I saw that a while ago. I told you about yeah. that. I think once that. Yeah. It turned out better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <it> was- <laughs> that's a terrible thing I started looking you know I was on the computer when it's going on and I was kind of like paying attention a little and then it kind of started getting my my attention part way through so that was that yeah. was good I didn't expect it to yeah it was decent yeah oh, I can't wait you have to review the new um, oh there's another new one out by uh, Nicolas Cage <laughs> Oh, is there another There's another out? one out. God, this guy's like five, six movies a year. Oh, no. Man, man, I couldn't believe it. But, you know, it's, they've got to start doing the wigs and the makeup a little bit better. He's just, <laughs> just, just doesn't work. Doesn't work. So it's a real Perfect. horror anyway. So he's in a horror. Oh. So that'll be interesting. Oh, that'll um, be fun. Well, you know, maybe he gets killed, that'd be fun. <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. So speaking of horror, now we've got a yes. uh, an author from uh, Australia. Um, yep. Even though the Flat Earthers just told us that there is no such thing as Australia, we are talking to an author from Australia. Uh, his latest book is The Gulp, Tales from the Gulp 1, and it's Alan Baxter. So thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So... Um, Alan, is it true that there is no Australia? It's all sort of put on? Is this... you, you know, the most annoying thing about that is, is these flat earthers <laughs> are always claiming there's no Australia and that we're all being paid to say there is, but I haven't seen any money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. So, you know, I'd, I'd happily perpetuate the myth if they're going to pay me for it. I totally don't understand that, that theory and how they <laughs> could actually think they can get away with saying there's no such thing. Well, how, do you, how do you just... Ignore that many people, and then say they're all in on it. Yeah, and it's weird. I, I, I once joined, oh, this is probably a bit of a tangent, but I, I once joined um, a Flat Earth Society Facebook page just for fun. I infiltrated it to see how long I could get away with it. Um, and I was just basically asking what I thought were fairly reasonable questions that a flat earther might say to say, you know, I think you're right that the earth is flat. But what about this? And what about that? And eventually they blocked me. Um, and it, it, was, it was questions about international flight and, and how long it takes to fly to places that really that really bothered them, which was strange. Well, it's all fake. You know, that whole thing with the flights and everything. I mean, I, 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 we had them on the show, so it was pretty, um, it's pretty hard, though, because uh, they have a lot of different ideas there. Man. So it's good to talk to someone that's not real. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't exist. Okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a paid actor. I'm actually just, just down the road in uh, <laughs> False flag. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must be interesting. So how did you get into horror writing? You know what? I don't know. Um, it's, it's a strange thing to say. Um, but, well, if you I, were created, it maybe you were created to be a horror writer. Well, maybe, mm. maybe that's it. Maybe that's just my backstory. Um, yeah, I, I didn't realize I was a horror writer until other people started, started saying so. Um, and when people started talking about me like a horror writer, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess maybe because I wrote sort of these weird genre things with all sorts of supernatural elements and, you know, magical ideas and weird thriller and crime and noir and all this stuff that I would mix up. Um, and it was always just very dark. Um, and I just thought it was just generally dark fiction kind of thing. Didn't think too much about it. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, actually, yeah, no, you're right. This is this is horror as well. So, um, yeah. And then, I've, you know, I've kind of leaned into it more over the years. And I do write some more straight up horror these days than maybe I used to. But, um, but yeah, I just I just kind of naturally drifted that way through the course of writing, I think. Well, you know, and Australia is pretty dark, maybe. So that's where. Well, there's nothing here that doesn't want to kill you. So, I mean, it gives you an edge. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm not going to touch that. That's, that's open. <laughs> well, it, it, so do the, um, do your fans and do people that call you horror writers, does that affect how you write then? No, I don't think it does much other than the fact that, um, see, I know I, I've always been a horror fan all along. Like some of my earliest reading, like James Herbert and Stephen King back when I was far too young to be reading it, which is probably a lot of what influenced me. Um, uh, so I've got, I, I've never had an issue <clears throat> with horror or with being called a horror writer. It was just wasn't really something I thought about that much until other people started mentioning it. Um, so I don't know that it's really influenced what I write specifically. But I do seem to be in some ways leaning more towards horror these days than I did before. But I think that's mainly because that sort of that weird sort of urban fantasy um, sort of sandpit that I used to play in for a while before. Uh, I've done a lot of work in that. I've written a trilogy, a couple of standalone novels and, you know, sort of following those tropes. And I'm just kind of naturally drifting more towards um, the, the places that I enjoy more, which tends to be the weird supernatural and the crime and noir and that sort of stuff that sort of all mixes together so nicely and is probably more horror than anything else. Oh, it's pretty interesting. Where do your ideas come from? Everywhere, man. Everywhere. Life yeah. is a mess. Um, I've said it before, <laughs> the, the, only, uh, the only real difference between writers and non-writers is that we all see the same stuff and we all have the same ideas. It's just writers remember them and put them in stories and other people have better things to do with their time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, so they come from all over. How, so maybe explain what you are, like your kind of average day as a writer. Like, so, you know, how do you know? Like, so are you going to sit down and what kind of story are you going to write? Maybe if you could kind of let us in on some of your own creative process. Yeah, sure. Um, it's Well, for me, like a book isn't – nothing really comes from one idea – um, sometimes I write a lot of short stories and, and sometimes a short story might be one idea or one news item or one thing that just catches my eye and it's like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to play around with that. Um, but if I'm writing, you know, longer works, novellas or novellas or novels, um, for me, it tends to be more than one idea that's been circling around for a while. And then at some point, for some reason, two or three of those things kind of coalesce and clash together. And I realize, oh, they, those ideas play really well together. That's the story. Um, and usually that's going on constantly while I'm working on whatever came 
before. So, you know, having ideas, the number of ideas is never an issue. It's having enough time to write all the ideas down. That's a real problem. Um, so usually while I'm working on any given thing in the back of my mind, I've got this sort of tick over going of other things that I want to work on. And quite often I'll just jot down a few notes about things or a book idea will come up that I'll start making notes. So by the time I finally get to it, I've, there's a lot of other ideas that are kind of, you know, sort of coalesced into that as well. So it's been building up in my subconscious for a while. And even on the day, cause I run a martial arts school, I teach Kung Fu, um, is my sort of day job, although it's mostly evenings. Um, and I've got a young son who's seven years old that I need to take care of. Um, so a lot of the time when I can't write, I'm still mentally a writer and thinking that way and my brain's ticking over with those things. Um, so that's usually sort of how the process works. And I'm, I'm like the next few projects that I've got are all sort of lined up and there's always more ideas coming in. It's kind of relentless, really. I'm wondering, too, you just, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, being a, a Kung Fu teacher. Mm. And I've been involved in martial arts for a long time myself. And I, I just wondered, uh, does your martial arts training find its way into your stories and into your characters? Yeah, definitely, to some degree. Um, I mean, martial arts is a lifestyle, and the, the discipline and mm. the art form of it is very much um, parallel to the discipline and the art form of anything else, including being a writer. So from my point of view, absolutely, it's it's a part of life um, in writing as well. Um, and it does come up with uh, characters. Early on, um, people would tell me, frequently say, oh, you know, you write such great fight scenes. And it's like, well, other than writing, <laughs> that's all I know how to do is fight. Um, <laughs> so And so I ended up writing a, a trilogy. The Alex Kane series is, the, is a trilogy with um, with an underground cage fighter as a main character. And that's just sort of jam-packed with all sorts of fights. And, you know, the, the further he gets dragged into the story, the more he ends up facing different types of monsters and creatures that he has to figure out how to fight instead of just wow. people that he's used to beating up. Um, and, and so that was, you know, a deliberate, well, let's write a character who is a martial artist first and foremost. And, you know, all he wants to do is get back to cage fighting and leave all this crazy, weird, magic <laughs> horror stuff behind. And, of course, the more he wants that, the deeper he gets dragged into it. That's how stories work for characters, unfortunately. Um, so that one very much draws on a lot of my... Um, training and sort of martial philosophy and stuff, but it comes across in other characters and even characters, you know, characters who don't fight and stuff like that. It's it's when something is so intrinsically part of your life, I guess it can't not bleed through into other things. Absolutely, oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Dave's books, you know, he's a dancer, so that's <laughs> yeah. Everybody's <laughs> erotic, skipping and tip tapping around. <laughs> <laughs> So your characters, where do your characters come? Did you are you a person that creates characters out of thin air? Like uh, you hear voices, you hear s stories, you hear things in your in your mind, and you sort of create that character out of sort of nothing. Or do you actually see someone on the street, or someone you know, or someone you've worked with, or something like that, and then you take that the personality maybe and sort of use that in your character? Yeah, it's a bit of both, really. Um, especially with things like with the gulp, for example, I mean, that's a series of five novellas that together make up a bigger sort of mosaic story. And I'm right now I'm working on the next set of five, um, which will, you know, continue um, events in, in the gulp. Um, and a lot of the characters in stories like that are sort of caricatures of real people. They're not really real people, but they're very much inspired by this person or that person or, 
you know, I'll see someone. It's sometimes even something as simple um, as seeing, like there's a, there's a character in the second, in the goal that I'm working on now, the second volume, um, that's this a very old woman pushing around a pram. And she's uh, naturally with the gulp situation. It's going to be weirdness involved because this is, that's what those stories are like. Um, but that was very much um, something that came to me just when I was walking through town and I saw this very old woman walking along, pushing a pram with a very young child in it. Um, and she looked really tired. And I was like, wow, imagine if that's her baby and it never grew up and she's been looking after a baby for 60 years. Um, and that was just a sort of an absurd thought that cropped up, but that's going to make it into a book because that was just like, you know, like this one thing that triggered the seed of a thought. Um, but other times with, you know, working on a story, it'll be a case of, right, I'm going to, I need a character like this that, you know, that does these things or that thinks this way or whatever. And that's where you sort of conjure someone sort of from thin air and, and create someone required for the part, as it were. I wonder, do you have an inner monologue? Do, do you hear your characters' voices or the, 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 the prose in your mind when you're writing? Or are you more translating images or symbols? It's weird, isn't it? I, I've seen mm. that quite a lot. Where I see people saying, oh, you know, I really wanted to, you know, do this and my characters wouldn't leave me alone or, or mm. you know, they wouldn't stop talking to me. And that's, that always strikes me. That's a weird thing to me. It doesn't really, it doesn't really work that way to me. I don't really have characters in my mind as like these separate entities driving driving my brain but um but i i am always told i i'm, I'm right very visually like you know people go oh this would be a great movie and oh it's like you know you know you, it's the very cinematic sort of writing and i think it's because i do have that they call it hyperfantasia you know you have this really powerful mind's eye to sort of create imagery and stuff um and so i do very much sort of think in those terms and the characters are very sort of three-dimensional and real to me but it's not like they're they're independent and like talk to me um and won't leave me alone kind of thing I mean, <laughs> that. that kind of sounds horrible um but um but when i am writing they are very much sort of people who are formed and and as i'm writing i'm sort of i'll relax into it and let the story go where it goes and quite often characters will do things i don't expect in that sort of context and when that happens i let the story go you know um always always trust the story always follow where it goes um but yeah that that whole my characters talking to me thing sounds pretty pretty creepy i think <laughs> exactly i you know dave dave's trying to get saying. other writers to to join in and say he's normal but it's this yeah. mental illness <laughs> i am not normal yeah, no. <laughs> none, honestly, none of us are normal. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to overcome, you know. But we're, it's okay, Dave. Don't worry about it. It's okay. just fine. He's chained up in the yeah in the basement of House of Mystery. That's right. You don't want to see him on the street. No. But gulp. What What is the gulp then? How would you describe that to someone? Okay, so the gulp um, is what local people call the town of Gulpepper. Um, they call it the gulp because the place has a habit of swallowing people. Um, it's an isolated harbour town on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia. Um, a couple of reviewers have said things like um, that I found my castle rock. Um, and, and that's really good because that's kind of that's sort of what I was going for with it. I wanted to create this place that is sort of isolated. Like there's a town half an hour each direction, um, you know, and small towns and, and bigger cities further away and whatever. But the town itself is just surrounded by bush. It's in this little kind of natural rocky harbour. Um, and it's quite a quite a decent sized town, but it's separated from everything else. And I just wanted to create this place where 
a weird town where weird stuff happens and weird people live. And I just get to play with all these strange and bizarre sort of cosmic horror and weird horror and body horror kind of stories. But, but I can come back to this same location um, and potentially to the same characters frequently and, and enjoy that sort of place. That's what I started doing. So with the first volume, the first set of five stories, I kind of laid that out and I tested the the sort of the framework of what I was going to do to see if people were into it. Um, and it's been really popular and people are really keen for more stories, which is great because now I'm working on the next set of five. And then after that, hopefully periodically I'll get to write new stories set in and around the Gulf, maybe novels as well. So yeah, it was, a, it was a sort of, a, it was a deliberate, um, it was a deliberate effort to create my own weird Australian place that I could revisit. And, and it's got all those sort of things that, um, in some ways are quintessentially Australian. It's ice. It's not an outback town. You know, I wrote the Rue, which was about a crazy demonic kangaroo decimating an outback town. And that's always fun. You know, that's always good to go far out into the outback because that really is the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, so you want isolation, you go in that direction on the coast, you know, 90% of the population of Australia lives on 10% of the land around the edge. Yeah. Um, but you can, it's a big place. It's a hell of a big place and you can still get isolated spots along the coast. And so that's what I wanted. Find that, find that isolation, find that, that waterside, you know, oceanside living, that harbour town, the fishing town and the weird Australian nest that grows from small towns and, and just basically keep digging into that. It's, it's a, it's an endless mine for stories and for characters, really. Uh, so in a way, the gulf is kind of a character in its own. Oh, very much so. Yeah, for me, um, location is always character. It's, yeah, it, it's, um, I, my, my novel Hidden City is about a fictional city called Cleveport that is actually a, 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 a sentient city and the city gets sick, which causes all kinds of problems for the inhabitants. Um, so that was one where I sort of really leaned into that place as character sort of idea. But for me, that's always true that where something happens is really important. It's, it should be sort of, sort of twofold in some ways like you should be able to take a story from anywhere and set it anywhere else and it should still be a coherent story um but equally if that story is set in a particular place certain aspects of it could only happen in that place because because place is so important as a character and that's very much the case with the gulp it's you know it's it's a it's a lot like a lot of australian coastal towns a lot like a, a lot of australian sort of isolated towns but it's but it's also specifically Goldpepper. Um, so, yeah, very much a character. And, and why the town is so weird and why these strange things happen there is something that's sort of hinted at and explored along the course of the stories as well. So that's kind of, I was going to say, is that sort of the subtext? Is that sort of what lies under the, the stories that are, people are reading? Yeah, so there's through the, through the, the first five stories in, in the first volume that's out, um, there's these various sort of hints of things that go on everybody who spends a night in Goldpepper has the same dream for example uh, at least once um and and these things sort of overlap a little bit and they're hinted at throughout the first stories and then I'm exploring that a little bit further now with the second set of stories and it's going to come not exactly come to a head but there's going to be sort of a focus on it that will then widen out again later so that potentially other stories can still happen there um, but the place being like it is and why it's like it is, is definitely a thread through all the stories that probably will never get explained completely for maybe for reader satisfaction, but hopefully explained enough that people get the feel of 
you know, why this place is just so messed up. Hmm. It's going to be like lost, you know, it just never ends. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. <laughs> Although I got so, I, I, I stuck with that series uh, and I was just so appalled and horrified yeah. and disappointed with the ending. So I think, that's, I think that's a good reason not to end it because then, then you can't upset people by making an ending so absolutely atrocious. Well, exactly. That's, that's sort of my thought. They could have just left it, walked away, and then people would always hope for more. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like, the, like the, It's a Sopranos ending, just made yeah. to black. Right. Yeah. And, you know, because now they've got a really bad taste in people's mouths. People say awful things about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a shame. It's like taking a beautiful car on a long drive and then crashing it into a tree instead of parking. Yeah. Right, exactly. But I guess you could almost say anything, being that Australia's not real, so you can sort of, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, you that's could, true. You know, Although I'm getting hate mail today from uh, crypto bros and, and billionaire fanboys because I said mean things about Elon Musk yesterday, so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it got picked up by Yahoo News and I woke up to a lot of hate mail this morning, so. oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been entertaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get used to it. I, I usually yeah. wait for a week unless someone calls me. I'm waiting, and then you go through it. But there's not much. Does that sort of influence you? But like when you're going about your day and you're writing and stuff, if you ever get feedback from people or a lot of things that are crazy or negative, does that sort of stay with you for the next book, or do you sort of think differently when you go to rewrite something? Um. Well, I, I try to always be true to the story, but equally, it's fascinating to me um, to to get feedback. Like I, reading reviews is is amazing. Like a lot of people, go, oh, I don't read my reviews. It's like you do. You just don't tell people. Probably. Yeah. I mean, some <laughs> so, some people maybe don't, uh, but I do. I, I'm I'm very very fortunate that you know by far the majority of the re- reviews I get are at least vaguely positive. Um, but I just find it fascinating when I read them and people saying, oh, you know, he was doing this and he's done that and it's so clever the way he did that. And it's like, wow, you guys, I didn't intend any of that. That's, I was just wrapping <laughs> on some great charm. Um, so I find that really interesting. Um, and I'm sure that that does sort of feed back a little bit. And I'm always aware if people do start talking you know, particularly a lot about any given thing. If you really get that vibe that people really are expecting something particular or they really want something particular from a story, particularly in a series, um, I'll always pay a bit of attention to that because while first and foremost, I'll always serve the story and write the story that I want to tell, I will always take into account people's expectations. And even if I'm not going to go in that direction, I might sort of obliquely address them in some way so that people, you know, in some ways you can use it almost against people to to subvert their expectations. You start sort of hinting at stuff they've talked about and you can imagine them, oh, I'm right, it's going to be this. And then you swerve (laughs) off to a different direction. Um, But there's, I've got a series of uh, supernatural novellas about a character called Eli Carver, who's this um, ex-mob hitman who's haunted by a handful of ghosts of the people that he's killed in the past. Um, and the third one of those is just about to come out. It was well, just about end of the year, November, I think. Um, and it was really interesting when the second one came out, a lot of the feedback was that people really enjoyed the book, was really hoping for more from the ghosts. I thought this was going to happen and that was going to happen. Um, and it's like, okay, well, that, that's, that's, that was something I was going to draw out over a longer period of time. But people were sort of the feedback was that people really keen for the development of that aspect of the story. Um, And so that very much 
influenced how I then wrote the thir third instalment because it's like, okay, I'll, I'll speed this up for you guys, no problem, you know. And, and I deliberately then threw more of that stuff in sooner than I'd originally planned to because that was the feedback I was getting. If you go to, let's say, do something different, let's say you want to write a, a romance or something in a completely different area, don't, do you think your fans would let you? It's <laughs> a good question, isn't it? Um, honestly, I'd like to think, uh, more than anything else, I'm, I hope that a lot of people would pick up stuff that I do because it's an Alan Baxter book, not because it's about this or about that. Uh, having, you know, got a few books out now, it would. I'd like to think that I've, I've sort of developed um, something of a style that people want to follow. So they get my books because I wrote them and they hope for the best kind of thing. Um, equally, there is a certain amount probably of reader expectation of what they're going to get. So if they did buy the latest one and it was a romance, that might really throw people. Um, but to be honest, I'm, I'm just an unashamed genre writer. And while most of what I do is dark and most of what I do is supernatural to some degree, there's also, you know, all the other elements of mystery and thriller and crime and stuff like that. In it. To be honest, romance, is, romance and erotica are probably the only genres that I don't like dabbling from time to time. So I don't think necessarily I could go too far away from reader expectations anyway. I think the only thing would be if I wrote for, for a different age group, because what I write is, um, it's really dark. It's really gritty. It's really sort of confronting as a lot of horror and dark fiction should be. Um, but I did during the first lockdown last year, I did actually write a book for my son, um, which is essentially it's a middle grade fantasy novel, basically. Um, and I, if he won't let me publish it because I wrote it for him. Um, so as far as he, I said, so maybe I can send this to publishers now. And he's like, no, you wrote it for me. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm waiting for him to grow up and understand that if we do sell it to a publisher, maybe we'll make some money and then he might feel a bit more inclined to, yeah, I'll offer him a split. <laughs> um, but if I did that, I would probably write under a pen name as much as anything else, because I wouldn't want people reading that, and, you know, 10 year olds read that and then go, oh, so what else has Alan Baxter written? And then come across like, you know, the gulp or devouring dark or something. And, and then I start getting sued by their parents for therapy bills. So <laughs> I think that's the only time I would like deliberately draw a distinction. Um, but equally, I don't know how far I'd be inclined to sort of stray from the sort of stuff that I do anyway, because it's so varied. It's so broad and varied. Anything from that sort of dark, fantastic right through to the straight up non-supernatural, gritty crime horror. I play across that spectrum anyway. Well, after writing um, horror fiction, dark stories, um, do you have a way to decompress or do you need to decompress? Can you just move on to the next thing or do you need to take some time out? I do need to sometimes, particularly um, when you're writing, you know, the worst scenes with the worst people sometimes. Um, but I find that taking my dog for a long walk on the beach is, is a really good way to, to decompress. Um, and I, I, ride a, I ride a motorcycle too, so sometimes I'll just get on the bike and I'll go out for, you know, for a ride for a couple of hours and just sort of, you know, blow cobwebs away that way. Um, but I'm also, I'm not averse to, I, I, I get in a real soapbox when people start talking about writing rules and everything else. Um, <laughs> and all this, all this, you have to write every day crap. It's like, well, that's a hell of a privileged position. You don't have to, you, just, you need to be in a mental mind space of a, a writer every day, observe the world around you, you know, but you write when you can sort of thing. And if you want to make something of it, then absolutely you have to make more time to do the writing, but any prescriptive rules kind of bother me. Um, and I'm, I'm very much, um, 
a proponent it's the same with the martial arts as well an active part of physical training is rest if you if you overtrain it has yeah. a real detrimental effect on on your physicality and on your ability um and so i'm very much comfortable sort of taking breaks especially if i get to the end of a large project like if i wrap the first draft of a novel which takes a lot of mental energy i'll quite happily not think about another story or anything for a week or two weeks or even a month um mm. my brain is still ticking over like a writer I'm, I'm still frequently jotting down notes and sending myself emails as reminders and whatever else because that process is always going on but it's not unusual to take a decent break for the end of one project before I start on the next as long as um you know I have the you know the, the privilege of doing so sometimes there might be a deadline looming in which case I just have to knuckle down and do the work and that's that's fair enough that's what that's what the job is um but if the ability is there to take a week off then I quite often do well it seems like you write like writing series as well like trilogies and stuff like this um do you do you kind of outline all of it before you start putting them out like do you sort of decide on on how many books you're going to have in a series and what's going to be in each of them do you all do you plan all this all out or are you just kind of doing it as it goes um li- little bit of both with the alex kane series i was i the first one is called bound um and I, when i started that i originally was writing it as a standalone novel um and by the time i was sort of halfway through I was like, oh, this backstory that I'm building, this story that I'm writing, there's a lot more to that. This is this is a bigger story, and I can I can explore that. So by the time I had ended the first draft of Bound, I'd had I'd written down a few notes for Obsidian and Abduction, and realized, okay, this is going to be a trilogy. Um, and even then, I had you know sort of skeleton notes, no real great detail, just a few things. It's like, okay, I'm going to put this and this and this, these key sort of points. Um. The same with the Eli Carver. The third one of those is coming out in November. And when when I wrote the first one of those, which is called Manifest Recall, when I wrote that, I thought I was writing a short story. I had this idea for a short story, um, and then it started growing. And I was like, Oh, this is bigger. This is this is like this is cool. This is kind of a pulp novel thing. Um, and so it turned in turned out to be a short novel. And then of course it's like, okay, well that's a great character there. I can write more stories in that. So with that one, I've just it's just kind of this open-ended idea that I can just keep writing the like Harbor stories along as long as, you know, people want to read them really. Um, so I've always been more like as a signpost writer, like I'll just put key points that I want to reach and I'll just let the story go and go between them and see where it leads. Um, so I've never really planned out anything sort of beyond one book in any detail. I guess the Alex Kane series was, was the one, was the one that was most, sort of cohesive in my mind by the time I'd finished the first one I kind of knew the general story of the second and the third um but but even then there's potential for that trilogy there is potential for more Alex Kane books um you know the the characters there's there's things and threads that I could still explore if I did decide to go back and write more in that series so I think that's always a a, you know smart movie to leave leave a few threads at the end of a story so people if it's popular enough and the publisher asks for another one you can go okay yeah I can pick that up (laughs) <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder, um, you know, you've written short fiction, you've written novels, you've written novellas. Um, mm. Do you prefer to write short fiction or long, or do you consider yourself more of a natural short story writer or a natural novelist? Do you have a preference? N- not really. I, I, I love all the different lengths, um, and I love reading all the different lengths too, because diff- different 
you know, different stories lend themselves to different lengths of telling. Um, I am a huge fan of, of short stories. I love that really tightly focused lens. Um, but honestly, I think that in some ways, especially with genre fiction and, and horror and crime and those sorts of things, um, there was that sort of heyday of the pulp novel for a reason, I think. That sort of novella length, anything from sort of 30 to 50,000 words maybe, um, is a really great length for that kind of genre fiction. And I, I found myself doing a lot of that recently. Um, I've written a few novellas um, that are in that sort of ballpark. Um, but then I do love writing full-length novels as well. And, I'm, you know, I've got several out and I'm working on a, two more at the moment. One's finished in first draft, um, which is sitting, uh, you know, marinating for a while before I mm. go back to it. And um, another one is out on submission. So um, I don't really have a preference. I, I, li- I love to write a story as long as it needs to be. Um, there is a certain sort of – there's more satisfaction, I think, in – in finishing and pulling off a full-length novel, and it's it's kind of nice to have a back catalogue of, of full-length novels. But then it's also nice to have this, you know, this sort of section on the shelf with all these short novellas and pulp novels because you know they're just they're great fun, and they're also a really great way for readers to um, sort of find out mm. who you are and what you're about. If someone wants to invest a couple of hours to read a novella, it's less than asking them to put ten hours into a novel. So, absolutely. Do you, do you ever find, it sounds like you put a lot of yourself into different characters and the story. Do you ever find that you feel a little bit vulnerable about exposing some of your feelings um, to people? To some degree, I suppose. Um, there is a lot of, I mean, there tends to be a sort of lot of autobiographical philosophy, I suppose, in some ways in, in the characters um, that I write. I think that's probably true for all of us. Um, but then I do also write a lot of characters that really are nothing like me and think in very different ways to the way that I think. Um, and so hopefully it would be a little bit blurred as to, you know, which characters are drawing more heavily on me than others. So, um, I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm sure there is, a, there is a sort of autobiographical nature to almost every character you write. In some ways you have to go, okay, if I was this person, what would I do to make the character, you know, believable in its own way? But equally, I don't think I really feel particularly vulnerable about things because um, because I think it's probably a bit harder to tell from a reader point of view where certain things come from. Um, there's, my novel, Devouring Dark, um, is probably in some ways the most personal on that front. There's a character in, in that story who's an older guy on his deathbed in a hospice. And so, some of the lines from that character's mouth are verbatim things my own dad said to me on his deathbed. Um, so I did really explore a lot of that sort of justice and injustice of aging and terminal illness and death and all that sort of stuff in that novel. That that whole novel is basically a study in death and what, what it means and what it doesn't mean and stuff. So um, in some ways, that's probably my, my most personal book in terms of drawing on personal experience. But even then, it's populated with a wide variety of characters. So. Right, right. I was just because you see so much of you're so exposed now with uh, social media. People yeah. can can approach you so much easier than they could before. You know, so um, sometimes I always wonder about that, um, especially when you. Uh, for me, doing true crime, I'm not putting a, a lot of that in there. If that mm. makes sense, it's not the same. Yeah. You know, I um, think I think readers do have an expectation these days to have access to authors. Um, 
which on the one hand I don't really mind too much because it's kind of you know I spend most of my time my wife calls it the cave you know I'm sitting in the cave on my own making stuff up um so having an interaction with real people is is good teaching the kung fu is a great um outlet for that because I have to go out and teach and mix with people and and be in the real world which is good um and I think online there's this certain expectation that people are you know I, somebody mentions this author it's like I, I might read this author I'm going to go and see who he is some people will just get the book other people will go and find out read your twitter feed and see what sort of person you are so that's just kind of the world that we live in now but yeah. equally i am very open on social media i'm very genuine anything you see on there that is me it's not an act it's not a front in any way but equally i'll only put out so much there are certain things um about me and my family that I just don't mention, you know, there's sort of off limit stuff that doesn't get mentioned. Some some private stuff stays private. And I think finding that balance is important these days, you know, especially if you have a bit of a public profile that you you very much choose how much of yourself you put out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can change um, quickly online. You know, mm. People's opinions, you know, they can. Absolutely. And now I noticed, too, you like to uh, you've written with um, other people. And I guess David Wood is one of them. How was yeah. that writing with someone, especially when they're in America and you're in Australia? I think Dave and I had written five or six books together before we actually ever met in person. Um, we we spent many hours um, on Skype and Zoom talking about books and stuff. So we knew each other very well. We'd never actually been in the same physical space until uh, until 2018. Um it's an interesting process. Um, Dave and I have known each other for a long time. Um, and when we sort of gel together, um, he's very much, he's really good at that sort of action adventure and that sort of thriller plotting. Um, and I'm, I'm good with all the sort of the, you know, the weird esoteric stuff and, and good characters and things like that. So we, the, the skills that we have are very compatible for making good books. Um, and we, we did it originally. We wrote a short. Basically, it's it's called Dark Right. It's basically a horror novel that's sort of a tribute to those old B-grade Hammer horror films. It was we were basically writing a novella version of one of those just to see how we did together. Um, and the process was pretty good. It was pretty easy. So now we we write two series together: the Jake Crowley adventures and the Sam Aston investigations. Um, Jake Crowley's basically sort of occult thrillers. Um, like as somebody said once, it's like Dan Brown only good. Um, then the Sam Aston, <coughs> Sam Aston investigations are basically monster thrillers. Um, and they're huge fun. They're great fun. Uh, and Dave and I, as I say, we're very compatible. We've got a system down now. We work very well together. It's not something I could do um, a lot or with many people. I think to collaborate like that, you have to find a particular kind of writing chemistry that works. Um, and we're, we're very lucky. Dave and I, it, it does work. We, we, you know, it uh, it comes together. It comes together well, and it's it's good fun. And the books are popular, which is great. Um, but it's not something I could do too much or that often. I'm sort of working on another collaboration at the moment with someone else that's had, that's sort of gone on hold for the moment for various reasons. But we'll be picking that up again soon. And I've done a couple of short fiction um, collaborations with other people. Um, but otherwise, it's really just me and Dave on the collaboration side because I've got way too many sort of ideas and projects on solo projects on the go that I don't really have the time to, to to write with other people. But, you know, never say never. Who knows if the right opportunity or situation came up. So what do you think your most important book is? Or what do you, what do you, what are you most proud of? 
Wow, that's a tough question. Um, see, I mean, different things for different reasons. Like the, the Alex Kane series, um, that trilogy sold to Harper, Harper Collins, Harper Voyager. Um, so, you know, that, that was like the big legacy publishing deal that I scored. So that, you know, I'm really proud of that, for that reason. Um, I mentioned Devouring Dark before, which is a very, so it comes from, you know, a lot of that story comes from a very personal place. So, you know, I'm very proud of that one as well. There's, I mean, with the gulp, the latest book, that's something that had been percolating around in my mind for a while. I really wanted to create this thing that was very much my own sandpit to play in. Um, and I'm very pleased with how, you know, well that's been received and how that's doing. So I, you know, different things, um, have a place in my heart for different reasons, I think. So it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to pick any, any one in particular. I'm very, I'm very proud of all my children. Do you read anything or have any influences that might be uh, that your fans might find surprising? Ooh, well, good question. I don't know, actually. Um, <laughs> maybe because uh, I'm a huge fan of Clive Barker. By far the biggest mm. influence on me and my writing is Clive Barker. Um, but that would be no surprise to anyone who's read the sort of stuff that I write. Um, I, I'm a massive fan of Westerns. I love old classic Westerns. Um, like the old sort of black horse hardbacks and stuff like that. Whenever I'm at thrift stores or markets or stuff, if I see someone's got a little pile of those old tatty Western paperbacks, again, that mm. novella length, you know, that pulp novel. Yeah. I'm always grabbing those. I think they're fantastic. I did write a weird Western short story once. Um, and I do have, I have a, I have a sort of whiteboard of, of ideas that are sort of a little bit pushed to one side. These are things I'd like to do at some point if I had the time. And, and a weird horror Western is, is on that list. I'd love to find the time and inclination to get around to that at some point. Um, so that might be a little bit left field for some people. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, otherwise, I guess I'm sort of pretty cliche. I read a lot of fantasy and science fiction and horror and crime and noir and mystery and all that mm. sort of stuff you'd sort of expect to read. Mm. Okay. You don't drink tea or knit? I do drink tea. I am English. Um, uh, uh, yes, I was, I was born in England, uh, even though I've been Australian now for a long time. Um, so I do, I tend to drink coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon and whiskey at night tends to be the process. Um, but my son knits, my son is learning to knit and uh, he, he's, he's getting really good at it. And my wife's a keen knitter and our neighbor who he hangs out with. So, uh, but yes, knitting is weird folk magic to me. I don't understand how you can just loop a load of bits of string together and then it stays together. So, so what crime did you commit? Uh, they sent you from England to Australia. <laughs> I met an Australian girl. That was my crime. Oh, <laughs> Problems there, I'll tell you. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about your website. Do you have a website, or do you have, uh, you know, uh, a place that you want people to confide you on or read about your books? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think. This came up in a in a panel recently about social media and what should you know what's most important for authors and I was saying then regardless whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or anything else should always at the very least just have a website that's got you know your contact details and your bibliography on it um, because that's something you control it's one central place people can find you um, and that that my website's getting huge now I've got all sorts of stuff on there which is really good um, and you can just find that at alanbaxter.com.au um, and that's that's the easiest place to find anything else because it links out from there. I've got a Patreon where people can get all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff and, and sneak peeks at works in progress and all that sort of stuff, and my Twitter and YouTube and all those other things are linked from my website. So, yeah, just my name, .com.au, um, is the easiest place to find it. 
and we'll have all that on, on our website, too. Um, now, speaking of drinking, <laughs> and speaking of whiskey, um, you, you call yourself in your bio, whiskey-soaked swear monkey. Now, we can't swear on the radio, but I, did wanted to, I didn't want to, you know, because I'm a big whiskey lover. Do, do you have a favorite whiskey, and you, do you ever put whiskey into your stories? Uh, yes and yes. Um, yeah, the, these momentary <laughs> uncomfortable pauses that have been happening while I've been talking is, is me biting my tongue, trying not to swear. Um, because see, that that whiskey soaked swear monkey. It came up a long time ago on on Twitter, um, and people started talking about what would the title of your autobiography be, um, and people were joking around with each other, suggesting, and it ended up people suggested that my my autobiography would be called "Some Good from a Whiskey Soaked Swear Monkey." Um, which I actually thought was a great title, and you know, give it another decade, I might write the thing. Um, I like it. <laughs> I've, I've never been secret of my love for whiskey and single. I'm a single malt man through and through, mm. uh, and very much uh, a Glenn Fiddick fan. When mm. um, love it. When, when I was a fractious baby and would cry at night, my dad would sit up with a with a Glenn Fiddick, and he would sort of rock me. And he said that when he got really sick of me crying, sometimes he'd put, dip his finger in the whiskey and let me suck his finger, and it would send me right to sleep. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's child abuse these days, but you know, back <laughs> it was just how you did it. Um, so he always maintained that I got my taste for Glenfiddich from him, which is probably true. Um, but yes, I'm very much, I'm very much a single malt fan and, and very much a, a Glenfiddich fan in particular. And, and frequently whiskey will crop up in, um, in my, in my book, in Devouring Dark, the main character, um, is also a whiskey fan and, and mentions a few favorites as well. Yeah. Glenfiddich's a great whiskey. Probably drink yeah, a lot it's, 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 it's great. It's, uh, there's one, I can't afford it, but in particular, the Glenfiddich 21 Rum Reserva is, mm. as far as I'm concerned, the greatest whiskey in the world, but it's about $250 a bottle Australian. So unless I, I, I've only ever had it a couple of times when people have given me very generous gifts. <laughs> so if it I sounds ever, awesome. Know, oh, it's, it's fantastic. If I ever get the big, uh, start making big sales or if I ever get a really big deal or something that happens that I get a big, big crash in, of, of money coming in, I'll probably treat myself to another bottle. Well, listeners can send you a bottle. Absolutely. Yes, yes. If anybody wants to send me <laughs> a Glenfiddich 21, I will gl- gratefully receive it. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. How, so this last book came out in January, but how was it for you getting it together over the pandemic? Was that sort of a, a stickler? But you know what? It, it kind of happened because of the pandemic in a way, because when it, when it first kicked in, um, so where I was at the time is, um, I was working on working on a novel, a full-length novel, um, and then everything went crazy with the pandemic. Um, and all of a sudden, I had my son at home, homeschooling. I had to figure out how to deliver my Kung Fu classes via Zoom and do it online because we just mm-hmm. basically got shut down. Um, and all of a sudden, everything became overwhelming, and I didn't really have time or headspace um, to think big, you know, to think in that kind of novel um, shape. So the first thing I did was I wrote that middle grade fantasy for my son because I'd kept saying I was going to write a story for him and I kept putting it off and it was like, well, you know, I always said I wanted to write something he could read before he was a teenager because none of my stuff. And it's like, well, if I keep putting it off, he's going to be a teenager before I get around to it. So I wrote that story for him and then we sort of read that together and and that was, that was you know, good because it was a smaller thing and I could, it was something different that I could do while I was dealing with all the other stuff that went on. And as the course of that year went on, um, in the January of that year, um, before everything went crazy, the Rue had just come out, um, which was a bit of a gag. You know, it was a bit of a you know, crazy demonic kangaroo just 
tearing people apart in an outback <laughs> town. But it was super popular and people were really enjoying it. Um, and that made me think, oh, you know what, maybe maybe these ridiculously Australian stories would be popular. And this idea of the gulp had been churning over in my mind for a while and I hadn't really done it. Um, but the combination of the roux being popular and my brain being fried trying to do so many other things, it's like, well, you know what, I could write these stories now because they were all, you know, they're all novellas of about maybe 15 to 20,000 words that, you know, there's five of them in the first volume. So I can think in that size um, because, you know, you don't have to, when you stay in the brain space of a full length novel, too many distractions become disruptive to it. Um, and the process in normal life is fine. I'm used to that. The process in pandemic life was different. Um, and so that's why I went, you know what, I'm going to write those, that isolated Harbour Town stories. I'm, I'm actually going to write those stories. Um, and so I did that because of the pandemic. Um, so it was stuff that I was able to concentrate on in, in this little sort of bite-sized pieces, sort of smaller stories at the time. Um, but because it had been cooking in the back of my head for so long before I got round to it, it then turned out, oh, this is quite good. I, I, there's a lot going on here that I hadn't really consciously thought about, but I know what I'm doing. And so I ended up writing that series of stories in relatively short order through the course of the pandemic last year. So, yeah, it kind of came about because of it. Hmm. So do you find that the outside things influence how you write? You know, like if you, if you were in a stressful situation, so, you know, with all the weird stuff going on the last couple of years and, and people doing all sorts of wild things um, to the extreme, and you get to see it so much on, on social media and TV now. Mm -hmm. um, I just wonder, does it sort of, do you think you get even darker when you write? It's an interesting question, isn't it? There's, there's this idea that um, when things get really horrible, people want even more horrible things to read to remind them that it could be worse. Yeah. Uh, when things are going well, people read less horror. Um, so, you know, for horror writers to constantly be praying for the world to be in a state of decay and, <laughs> and horror, <laughs> you know, it's a bad thing to hope for. Um, I, I don't know how true that is, to be honest. I think everything is kind of cyclical anyway. Um, I don't know that it really influences me, especially um, in what I do. I do tend to escape into writing sort of regardless of what's happening. Um, at some level, there is probably some influence from the world around me, you know, and how, and how I sort of address things or what I write at any given time. But it's not really something I'm aware of, I don't think. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, if you look back in, in 10 years from now or something and you look back at what you're writing, over the pandemic time and and all of that, I, I just wonder if um, you would sort of see it a little differently, have a different tone to it, maybe that you didn't realize. That's all. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, and and I, in some ways, I think it's probably the only uh, only something you could discover in hindsight. You know, like maybe if you did go back, you know, ten years from now and see what what we were putting out, then it might be interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it. I think it will be. I think we'll see a lot of. <laughs> action and reaction that we've had and, and the way we've done things uh, differently when it's when it's in the past. You mm, know, you're probably you know, right. You know, mm. which could be interesting um, because it'll have an interesting effect. And a lot of times I don't think we realize it until that younger generation grows up and talks about it, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think that's interesting now that like my son is seven. Um, so you know the, the the pandemic you know coronavirus covid-19 has been 
a part of life for a, a large chunk of his life that he can remember. Um, you know, he was only sort of what? What? When did it start? So twenty nine. So he was only just over um, sort of five, six years old when it started. Um, and you don't remember a huge amount of stuff before that. So for him, this is a really formative experience. And in some ways, it's that's what bothers me about the pandemic more than anything else. It's like the, the, these kids who should just be being kids at the moment are also dealing with all this weirdness where things keep getting cancelled on them and all the grown-ups are going around in masks and whatever else. This isn't their normal, which is kind of messed up. Um, mm. But then equally, kids are incredibly resilient and whatever is their normal is is their normal and that's fine. Um, so it will be interesting to see from the perspective of very young people and from teenagers now in a few years, you know, how that sort of plays out for them, how they respond to it. So, it, yeah, it's going to be an interesting process. I'm just looking back, I'm just looking forward to the bit when we are looking back on it rather than <laughs> living yeah. through it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, oh, anyway, well, we're running out of time. What's up next for you? What do you got coming next after the golf here? Um, so... The third Eli Carver book is coming out in November, which um, we haven't mentioned the title yet, but I've been talking to the publisher this week. I've just seen um, the cover for it, which is just a banger. It looks awesome. I can't wait to, to share that. So, um, and my patrons, my patrons, patrons on Patreon, um, always get to see that stuff first. Um, and then there'll be um, sort of a public reveal of all that stuff in, in a couple of months, I think. Um, and so, so that's out in November. I'm working on the Gulp 2, so those stories will hopefully be out sometime early next year. Um, and meanwhile, there's a novel on submission which will hopefully find a home before too long, and I'm hoping that that will be out sometime next year as well. So with any luck, we should have a new novella at the end of this year and the second volume of Gulp Stories and a new novel next year. That's That's the the loose plan at this point well fantastic so it's been a great conversation and we did learn that australia is real it is very real it is <laughs> it's a bit weird, but it is real i promise <laughs> sure sure we're on the take too so you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. checks in the mail checks in the mail it's been there for a long time but... <laughs> yeah coming from yeah. australia so you'll never get it you'll never get it because it's not a real check Oh boy. <laughs> anyway, well, our guest has been the writer of the uh, his latest book. It's called The Gulp, Tales from the Gulp 1. Alan Baxter, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Alan. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. 